Well, I'm really hoping to make it through verse 16 today. So I'm going to ask you to go to the book of Romans. Maybe your Bible is just kind of opening automatically there now that you've been in this five weeks. If you're new to New Hope, we've been working through the book of Romans, and uh, we've made it through about 15 verses so far. And uh, we know we have a lot to go, but 16 deserves its, its own day. So this is verse 16 day. I'm going to take you back just a little bit to where we've been in the last uh, couple weeks, but specifically last week. We saw last week that Paul expressed this incredible desire to be in Rome. And he said, I I want to be with you, but I've been prevented so far. And the the prevention was because he'd just been off doing other things for the kingdom and some things holding him back. But he said, when I get there, I really want to see the same kind of fruit that we've been seeing in the other Gentile cities. In other words, individuals who are responding to the gospel message. We left off in part way through 15, but let me take you 14, and here's what verse 14 says, Romans 1:14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Last week we discovered what he was talking about, are these two divisions of humanity. Because the Greeks, the the Romans who spoke the Greek language, very cultured individuals, saw themselves as wise and everyone else as foolish. So you you were either of the Greek-speaking language or you were not, so you were either wise or you're foolish. Greeks and barbarians, that's the two divisions. You feel like you got a barbarian in your life today? Maybe somebody in your family or in your office or in your neighborhood, you're thinking, that's a barbarian, I know who he's talking about. Uh, I want you to understand the framework of what Paul's delivering here. So we've got these two groups of individuals. People fall into either category, either cultured or uncultured. It doesn't matter, wise or foolish. I'm under obligation to both of them. Literally, we discovered last week, he meant he's a debtor. He's in debt. He's under an obligation. And we also discovered that we have the exact same obligation, church. We have the same debt, so we want to understand who is the debt to This is what we understand. Our debt is not to God, right? That's not who our debt is to. God gave us grace as a gift. We just sang about amazing grace. It was a gift to us. You don't pay for gifts, right? Okay, we don't pay for a gift. So since God gave us grace as a gift, we couldn't possibly be in debt to Him because you can't pay God back. But yet we're told we have the same obligation. We don't want to misunderstand grace. We really want to understand this. We don't owe God for this. He gave it to us. So who's the obligation to? He says the, the obligation is to the wise and to the foolish, to the Greeks and the barbarians. What is the obligation? The obligation is to reveal Jesus Christ. What does that look like? It means sharing the good news. You and I received it as a free gift from God. If you're a Christ follower this morning, it was given to us freely. Why would we not give it back out freely? If we believe it, why would we not tell other people about it? So Paul says there's this debt to be paid. There's an obligation regardless of nationality, regardless of intellectual sophistication. So verse 15 is naturally where we went last week to end it. We said, verse 15, So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Dot, dot, dot. That's where we left it off at. So we understand we're under this obligation. 
this obligation to speak of Jesus. And that takes us to verse 16. The thesis, the theme for all of the book of Romans, the central thought, and the most life-transforming truth that God has ever placed into the hands of man. Let's look at verse 16 and verse 17 together. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. To comprehend and to respond to the content of truth within those two verses is to have your time on earth and your eternal destiny altered forever. To respond and to comprehend to those two verses is to have your time on earth and your eternal destiny forever and completely altered. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this. Why might he need to say that though? Why does he need to put that out there right up front? Well, for one, he's fully aware of the pride factor. The pride that is rampant among the Greeks and the Romans of that day. Individuals who were very sophisticated and very cultured and very likely to be the ones who would dismiss the message of the cross and call it utter foolishness. In the first century, Rome was not only the seat of military strength for Caesar, but it was also the powerhouse financially and scientifically for the known world. So the intellectuals and the governing authorities and the financial powers were embraced within the city of Rome, within the empire, the heart of the empire. And Paul's saying, I'm coming to bring a message to them, to these individuals who are likely to dismiss this. Why? Because it's very offensive. It's very offensive because it pours contempt on everything they hold valuable. These individuals who thought of themselves so highly are being told to put their eternal hope into a poor, humble, Jewish man who died a criminal's death at the hands of their own empire. What? The sophisticated Greeks who look on everyone else as foolish? You want us to put our trust in him? Think about the things that Paul was mocked for throughout his life before he arrives in Rome. He's mocked in Athens for preaching Jesus. He's imprisoned in Philippi. He's literally smuggled out at night out of Damascus in a basket. Chased out of Thessalonica. Publicly labeled a fool among the intellectuals of Corinth. Stoned and left for dead at Lystra and declared a blasphemer of the living God in the city of Jerusalem by his own people. And as a result, they beat him, and they put him in chains, and then throw him in prison, where he goes for two years until he's put on a ship to sail to Rome. And in the midst of it, he's lost at sea. Day and a night, a ship breaks apart. Yet still, Paul can say, I am not ashamed of this gospel. See, all the leaders of these major cities did not intimidate him. 
Today around this planet, we've got multitudes of people who call themselves Christian. 2.3 billion people. By and large, the largest religion in the world. Islam, 1.6 billion. Christianity, far outnumbering all other world religions. Yet, sometimes it's possible to find ourselves in situations in which we may be ashamed of the gospel. Now, consciously, especially in a setting like this, in an auditorium where we're surrounded by other believers, very few of us would dare believe that any such action would be possible of us. We would say things mentally right now like, I would never be ashamed of the gospel. Yet, through fear, the fear of dishonor, the dishonor that's attached to the gospel, or association with the name of Jesus, there is the possibility of having a Peter moment. You know what I'm talking about? I don't know the man. I don't know the man. I blankety blank 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 don't know the man. That's Peter's association with Jesus, and he found in that moment he had a Peter moment. Why? Because there's this fear of a stigma. Here's what the stigma sounds like today, 2016, maybe in your workplace or in your neighborhood or among your family members. You're, you're one of those. You hold to those obnoxious views, and, and we don't want that stigma attached to us, so it causes a fear factor. I'm going to read to you a quote that you won't see on the screen. I just want you to mentally listen and try and date this statement. Hear this. Some Christians, if a religious book should happen to be in their hands when a friend unexpectedly visits, quickly put it away, lest it should bring disgrace upon them. Even the Bible itself they would be afraid to have seen upon their kitchen table. That was written in 1826. We think it's a phenomenon of today. It existed 200 years ago. It existed 2,000 years ago. That's why you find Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. See, this is an issue which haunts believers in some form or another. And it's very, very important to put a handle on it. It requires a really strong grasp of this gospel that we're supposed to be proclaiming to the Greeks and the barbarians. Why? Because the gospel is offensive. It causes an offense. Natural man is offended by it. So I began asking questions this week of individuals that I know that are in their, their 20s and 30s. Why is the gospel offensive? I know why it was deemed offensive when I was in my 20s and 30s. I just kind of wondered, is it still the same? So I started asking the question, why do you find the gospel offensive? Here's the responses I got. Well, because it puts limits on us regarding the things that we can do. We live in a world that tells us we can do anything we want. But the gospel puts limits on us. Uh, that's one, okay? I've heard that before. Here, here's the second one, and I think this one's even bigger. It's one thing to know that you're a sinner. It's another thing entirely to have somebody else tell you you're a sinner, right? Am I right on that? Okay, it's, it's one thing to know that you're a sinner. It's another thing to have somebody else say to you, you're a sinner. And then to go one step further and tell you all sinners are lost for eternity and will spend eternity in hell. I mean, you want to see the grenades go off, just start telling non-believers that. 
See, these realities put people in one of two positions. People either become humble and and respond with a, a need, saying, I need to know how do I address that issue, or the second one is they become defensive and begin pushing back. For some believers, the shame factor is really amplified, not only by talking about sin, but also by talking about the fact that God offers a rescue from sin by killing his own son, who was resurrected again the third day. People naturally respond, well, you believe that? So that's why Scripture says the word of the cross is foolishness. Look with me on the screen. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. While the principles of the gospel are considered foolishness by the world, the habits that we take on as believers in Jesus Christ, the things that we're told are to be our habitual practices, even those take a position against the habits of the world. Now, knowing all that we've just shared, standing in direct contrast to all of that is Jesus standing and saying, if you proclaim me before men, I will acclaim you before my Father in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you. Look with me on the screen at his statement. He, Jesus speaking of himself, God the Son, he will be ashamed of them and deny them in the presence of his Father and his holy angels. So on one side, the world accusing. On the other side, Jesus saying, you acknowledge me, I'll acknowledge you before the Father. And in the middle of all that, we have Romans 10, 9, which is our own expression, our own mouth. Look with me on the screen. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart a person believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. So to confess Jesus but then be ashamed of him is a lie, not only to man, but to ourselves, because with our same mouth we acknowledge him, but with the same mouth we could deny him. So because of our own mouth confessing him to be Savior and then denying him to be Savior, that makes us a liar, a hypocrite. We don't ever want to find ourselves in that place. So let's talk about the elephant in the room. And here's the elephant in the room. Believers know there is nothing more serious than to be ashamed of the gospel. But we also know the incredible difficulty in avoiding it. Here's what it's like. When we have opportunity to speak for Jesus, there's a real temptation to avoid it. And and when someone speaks against Jesus, we don't speak up. Our heart races, right? We want to jump in. And we think, this is the time. I'm going to really pounce on it now. And, and we actually break out in a bit of a sweat, but then tend to back off because it's easier to remain silent and avoid the conflict. Here's my understanding of the single greatest snare for Christians in talking about their faith. Because the gospel exposes sin, and the utter eternal lostness, not even sure if that's a word, but I'm going to use it, all right? The lostness, because it exposes sin and the lostness of a soul without Jesus, 
many people, when they hear it, they react with disdain, especially towards the one who's sharing it, and launch into arguments. So here's the snare. The fear of man and not being able to stand against the arguments that they bring, it is a great snare. I have a quote I want you to see from Jeff Wilson. He, he uh, was a pastor in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s in London, England. Here's a capture from his book. The unpopularity of a crucified Christ has prompted many to present a message which is more palatable to the unbeliever. But the removal of the offense of the cross always renders the message ineffective. An inoffensive gospel is also an inoperative gospel. An inoffensive gospel is also an inoperative gospel. So I found four words in the midst of verse 16 that are really, really crucial for us to understand. As believers, recognizing all that we've just talked about, we really need to understand this power that Paul is talking about if we're going to advance the gospel. So if you've got your notes out this morning or you're going to just watch along on the screen, look with me at the first word. The very first word that pops out when he says it is the power of God, he's using the Greek word dunamis. It's where we get the English word dynamite from. Not necessarily explosive power, but power that is a force, a strength, even to the degree of a violent strength. Catch this, church. The gospel carries with it the omnipotence of God. The gospel carries with it the omnipotence of God. And I'm not talking about like it being his battery pack, right? God's not the energizer bunny with a battery in the back. We're not talking about that kind of power. Omniscience is God's ability to know everything. Omniscience, he knows all. Omnipresence means God's everywhere. But his omnipotence, that omnipotence means he's all-powerful, meaning by which he created the worlds and by which he saves us. It is an expression of God's capacity. So his power and his power alone is sufficient to save so check this your salvation puts God's power on display let me help you transfer that thought over to what we understand today people have an innate desire humanity has an innate desire to want to change we want to look better we we want to feel better we want to have more money. We want to have more power. We want to have more influence. That is the premise of all advertising. The premise of all advertising is that people want to change, that there's a desire. And the job of the advertiser is to convince them that their product can deliver on the need. And it sounds like this. Hello, I'm Marie and I lost 50 pounds. You can too, right? <laughs> Have you seen that commercial over and over and over to like gag me? Stop it already. Okay, it's the job of the advertiser to convince you that the product that they're delivering can meet your need. Why? Because people want to change. So many, many man-made schemes succeed in making people feel better about themselves. But the desire to change is actually inwardly. 
The external habits can change, but it doesn't always affect the internal. People want to change internally in a way that will make them feel more content and less guilty. And so we shop, we surf, we go all over Amazon, we watch the shopping network trying to find those things that bring contentment. But the ideas that are promoted there, they have no power. They have no capacity. They can't remove the one thing that brings the guilt and the lack of contentment. We call it sin. That one thing, they have no power over it. None of those marvelous ideas or gadgets that you will find on the shopping channel can make you right with God. Somebody say amen. It just can't do it. So it's not within our power to change our sin nature. It's internal. It's within us. We can change our habits. We can change our practices. But only the power of God is able to overcome man's internal sin nature. So the Bible is really, really clear. The Bible is really clear that we can't be saved by going to church. You can sit here 24 hours a day if you want to. It won't save you. The Bible is really, really clear. You can't be saved by rituals. And you can't be saved by doing good works. You can't even be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. And if that's your thought, hear me on this. You can't do enough good things to stand before a holy God. The, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, it's obvious that our incapacity to keep God's law is the very thing which drives us to God to ask for His forgiveness. Romans 8 really speaks to this. Look with me on the screen. What the law, it's speaking about the Ten Commandments within that, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. See, so hear this on the Gospel. That which seems so utterly absurd to a non-believer is in fact the power by which God displays His power, delivering us from these empty lives over to His eternal destiny for us. God's great power is the power that saves. And He tells us that power is in you. That power is in you. God places His own Spirit within you. Now, that's the first word. That's power. Now, you're beginning to see why we're only going to do verse 16 today, right? That, that's one of four. Let's go to the next word. The word power we just did, let's go to the word salvation. The greatest display of God's power is in bringing us to salvation. You may think the greatest display of God's power was in parting the Red Sea. Or maybe when God stood on the sea and calmed the waters from a storm. Or, or maybe you think the greatest display of God's power is when He said, Lazarus, come forth! And Lazarus rose up out of the grave. Those are not the greatest displays of God's power. Those are displays of God's power. But the greatest display of God's power is in bringing us to salvation. I love, love, love the story that's found in the New Testament of Jesus sitting in an overcrowded house when people were storming through the doors trying to see him and somebody busted the roof open to let a friend down through the roof. Here's the setting. Jesus is so popular that individuals have gathered in mass and there's so many of them that they're hanging out the windows, hanging from the rafters. Everybody wants to see him. 
some guys arrive and their friend is paralyzed. And because he's paralyzed, they want Jesus to heal him. So what do they do? They start busting the roof apart. Now, that's going to get your attention when dust starts dropping and then the shingles break apart, and all of a sudden you've got an individual in front of you hanging on a pallet like a spider hanging from a web. You talk about interrupting a church service, right? Okay, so what are you going to do? You're going to stop. And, and Jesus is very aware as he's talking to this large crowd that the people in the auditorium are thinking, what's he going to do with this? Is he going to heal on the Sabbath day? See, the room is full of a bunch of religious people who are thinking it's against God's law to heal. And so Jesus knows what they're thinking, and he says, so you're thinking in your heart, am, am I going to heal him or not? And he says, so that you may know the Son of Man has power on earth both to forgive sin and to heal, I say to you, rise up and walk. Your sins are forgiven you. God's power on display in the life of that man coming down through the roof. Why does God do that? For the sake of his name. That's what Psalms 106, 8 says. Despite the rebellion of his own people, despite the rebelliousness of the Israelites who constantly were wandering away, why was he saving them? Psalm 106, 8, for the sake of his name. Why? That he might put his power on display to make it known. This word salvation is the word soteria in the, in the Greek language. Not that that matters a whole lot to you, but it, it literally means to rescue. So when you think of salvation, think of rescue. The point here is the power of God in salvation rescues you from the penalty of sin. Students here this morning, you're still in high school, junior high, maybe you're in college, don't ever be embarrassed by being saved. It is God's term. You are still in school. You're going to face it. You're going to face individuals who want to shame you for believing the gospel. You're a student walking the halls of some campus. Hear this. Don't ever be ashamed by the concept of being saved. There is no shame here. It is God's term. It belongs to Him. Salvation belongs to our God. So you know the verse. Salvation belongs to our God. And there is no better term to describe what he offers than to call it what it is, salvation. His salvation brings deliverance, but only for those who believe. Let's move forward so that we really understand this next word, and, and the next word is believe. It's our third word, it, and it's the word faith. I put it in your notes as the word faith. Believe and faith are the exact same thing. To everyone, it says in verse 16, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the power of God bringing salvation to who, church? Everyone. To everyone who believes. Believes what? Believes the gospel. Your daily living is filled with belief actions. You ever have somebody ask you if you're a person of faith or, or maybe they say you don't seem to have much faith or, or, or perhaps you feel like you don't have much faith? Just consider your daily actions. We put our money in financial institutions believing that they will keep our money safe, right? It, it, we, we have insurance policies called the FDIC the, from, from the government, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, insuring money. We have confidence that when we put money in a bank, it's going to be safe. 
we turn on faucets believing the water coming out of the faucet is going to be safe to drink. We have belief. We step on airplanes believing that mechanically it's going to be sound and it's going to take me from point A to point B. We have belief. People cannot function without believing to some degree. Virtually, all of life requires a natural faith. But Paul has in mind here a supernatural faith. A faith that comes from God. It's produced by Him. What does Ephesians 2.8 say? Faith that is not of yourself. You think you have to gin up enough faith. God says that faith to believe in Jesus comes from me. You think you don't have enough faith this morning? Ask God for more because it comes from Him. You, You chase wisdom down. God says you want more wisdom? Ask me for it. I deliver it. You want a greater degree of faith in your life? Ask God for it because it's not of yourself. It's the gift of God. It's something He gives you. If you're new to church, hear this. God does not even ask you to behave first. He asks you to believe first. He doesn't ask you to behave first. He asks you to believe. Behavior is an outcome of understanding who you are. Understanding who you are in Jesus. So don't ever fall under this false belief that you have to clean up your life first. That you have to make yourself better for God to like you. The good works or the good behavior, that's an outcome, a product of salvation. But it's not the means of it. Now some people are going to ask about this. Why does he say to the Jew first and to the Greek? Let me just touch on that just for a moment. But we're going to be coming back to it throughout the book of Romans. But here's, here's why. Jesus himself said in John 4.22, salvation is from the Jews. Now, that doesn't mean salvation came from the Jewish people in the sense that when you're thinking, wait, I thought it came from God. Well, God delivered it through the Jewish people in that Mary was a Jew, Joseph was a Jew, the parents of Jesus. Jesus was a Jew, newsflash, right? Okay, salvation is from the Jewish people because God holds these ancient people as a exclusive people in that he delivered his word through them. And so Jesus commanded that the gospel would go to the Greeks and to the barbarians, but he said, you better start in Jerusalem first. It's going to the Jews first and then to the rest of the world. The Jews simply have a greater degree of revelation, therefore a greater degree of responsibility to respond to God. We're going to come back to that throughout the book of Romans. Let's go on to the fourth and final word for this morning. And the last word is righteousness. Now to get there, you've got to go to verse 17 with me, okay? So we've looked at power, we've looked at salvation, we've looked at faith, and now let's look at righteousness. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. I really want you to process this quote that's going on the screen. You might even want to write it down in your notes because I know it didn't make it into your notes this weekend. Look with me at this statement. Faith activates the power. Faith activates the power that brings salvation. Faith activates the power that brings salvation. Faith activates the power that brings salvation. You getting tired of hearing it yet? I'm going to keep saying it until it's annoying. Faith activates the power that brings salvation. Why is that so important? Because in that act, in that action, the righteousness of God is revealed. Are you a student of the Bible? 
You, you like writing things in your Bible? Count over six words. For in it, that's three words, the righteousness of, the word of is better interpreted from. It's a better rendering. The righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness from God is revealed. Why am I distinguishing it that way? Because God imparts to us His righteousness to those who believe. My righteousness is as filthy rags, the Scripture says. It's like dirty paper towel. It's, it's, it's no good. It has no value. Yours is the same way. Our righteousness amounts to nothing. But God imparts His righteousness to us. And it's not only revealed, but to use a really old English word, it is reckoned to those who believe. Watch with me on the screen at two verses from Scripture that supports this. Philippians 3.8, that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of what, church? Faith. The faith that comes from God. See the circle? God provides the faith so that you can have the righteousness. Here's the second one. Romans 3.22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. Here's a really popular verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a what? A gift, a gift by His grace through redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Okay, you got four words down now. I need to end this with a powerful question. And it doesn't come from me. Don't credit me with it. It comes from an old dead theologian. M many of you know that I like Charles Simeon and quote him often. He's just an exquisite writer. I want you to see a question that Charles asked in 1833. Look with me at this. Now I would ask, shall sin in all its varied forms stalk abroad with unblushing effrontery and this glorious mystery be veiled for fear of man's reproach? You see why I love this guy? Shall sin walk around unblushing? And yet the people of God hide their face to talk about this glorious mystery for fear of man's reproach? I want you to look back with me at what has been the mechanism for literally billions of humans being transferred into eternity to stand before the God, the God of the universe, when the fallen angels not one of them has ever been saved. Not one fallen angel has ever been redeemed. They can't be. But billions of humans have been delivered into eternity. What has done that? The Gospel. What saved Adam? The Gospel. God, in His own words, speaking to Adam in the garden, through the seed of the woman, the head of the serpent will be crushed. What saved Abraham? The Gospel. God Himself saying to Abraham, Abraham, through you, all the earth will be blessed because through your seed, there will be one coming. It's the Gospel. Should we be ashamed of that, church? When we talk about the very thing which snatched you from the hand of Satan, 
and delivered you over to the power of God, you realize there is nothing that can pluck you from God's hand, right? Nothing can pluck you from the hand of God. You were snatched from the jaws of Satan. What did that? The gospel. Should we be ashamed of the very thing which delivered our family and friends who have passed on before us? Should we be ashamed of that thing, the very vehicle which they are now because of presently standing in the presence of Almighty God? Could that cause us to hide our face in quietness? Everybody say no to this. Is this worthy of shame? If you believe it, you would say no to that. It's not worthy of shame. Church, end with this thought. If in this very moment you could be translated into heaven to be an observer, to stand in the presence of God, you would hear the most magnificent choir ever assembled. I'd say on planet earth, but that wouldn't do it justice. I'd say in the universe, but that wouldn't do it justice. The most magnificent choir ever assembled in all of eternity stands before the throne of God. And what would you hear them saying? Honor, glory, praise, power, strength. Why? Well, to find out, you you need to understand revelation. So I'm going to ask you to do this. Close your eyes while I read to you a paragraph from the book of Revelation and picture yourself before the throne and hear what John is describing. He said it this way in Revelation 5. Then I looked and I heard the voices of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Why are they doing that, church? Give me your eyes now. Why are they doing that? Worthy is the Lamb that was murdered. Worthy is the Lamb that hung on a cross. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. They're celebrating a king who died for us. The angels are praising God for that. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. So look in response to what all creation does when those things happen. Go with me to verse 13. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Is that a subject to be ashamed of? There is nothing like the gospel on planet earth or in heaven above. And never, ever does the gospel fail. It is equally effective for Greeks and for barbarians. I'm not saying you're Greeks and you're barbarians, all right? I'm just saying it's equally effective. It is. It's equally effective. The righteousness, hear this if you've heard nothing else, the righteousness which the gospel provides is so pure and so perfect that when you're clothed in it because of what Jesus did, we stand before the living God without spot or without blemish. Regardless of what you've done in your life, you think you've out God? 
If you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, God sees you pure, and he sees you perfect. How? Because the gospel leaves no one under the guilt of sin. Now get ready with your amen. Because of Jesus Christ. That's it. Because of Jesus. And God says, all you have to do is believe. You have to just believe. And your ability to believe even comes from me. So I ask you, church, is this a thing to be ashamed of? No. No, 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 a thousand times no. I'm going to pray in two ways right now. There's individuals watching online, and there's individuals who have been in the auditorium throughout the weekend who are still wrestling through this, trying to understand, is this real? I challenge you right now, if that's you, maybe you're watching online. Ask God for the ability, for the ability to believe. He will not leave you wanting. You come to Him with a heart that's desirous of knowing Him better, ask Him for it. But I'm going to pray in this way also. I'm going to pray for your boldness this week. When opportunities arise, and they will, when opportunities arise, that you rise to the challenge. And God can do that through you. You've seen power, salvation, faith. You've seen how God delivers that to us. And then the righteousness of God is revealed in you. Let's pray that way. Father, I recognize there's individuals who really are trying to understand this and want to know you and desperately want forgiveness of their sin. We want to change. We want to be different, but we know we can't do it on our own. So, Father, for that one or that multitude of individuals who are listening, I pray that you would be especially close to them. Prompt them, Father, of who you are, Prompt them to ask you for a greater ability to believe. Father, I ask that you would respond to their need. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ right now, God. Not only that your blessing would rest upon us for having studied your word. Not only that your protection would rest upon us, but that your boldness would go before us. And that we would rise to the challenge to speak boldly of the name of Jesus Christ. That we would be identified here at New Hope as a people who are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter the circumstances. Gratefully, Father, we can depend upon you for the power that delivers the ability to do that. We ask for that in a greater degree, to a greater portion in our own life. I ask for that on behalf of these people. God, we ask for this in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Have a great week.